morning, Bethel. All right, so if you're new with us, or if you haven't been here in the last few weeks, we're currently in a series in 2 Corinthians called Cruciform Ministry. Cruciform means in the shape of the cross, and Paul's ministry certainly bears that mark. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who lived and died to save his people from their sins, defines and shapes how Paul serves others. And that's so abundantly clear in the way that he relates to the Corinthians. He loves them. He shows them mercy. He grieves and sheds tears over them and their sin. He's patient and long-suffering with them, but he calls them in no uncertain terms to put away their sin and follow Jesus. He sacrifices and suffers for their sake. He spends himself for their benefit and dies to himself on their behalf. And he urges them, and by extension, all of us, to follow him in this cruciform, Christ-like ministry. Now, I think that stands in stark contrast to the way relationships are treated at times today. In our culture, the length of a friendship is often directly correlated to the extent that a friendship serves me. So in other words, and you may hear this from everyone from false preachers to self-help gurus to pop psychologists, if a relationship no longer benefits you, if it no longer helps you be your best self, if it drains you and demands too much of you, you need to either pull away from it or get out of it. So Joel Osteen, he says it like this, quote, some people are peace stealers. They always have problems, always need your help, and are always in crisis mode. They expect you to come running, to cheer them up, to keep them encouraged. And if you don't, they make you feel guilty. You have to protect your peace and take care of your emotional energy. If you're taking on all this extra drama, you're not going to have the emotional energy you need for your dreams, for your family, and for your assignment. If you'll put up some boundaries, your life will be more peaceful and more effective. Life is too short to go through it being pulled out of rest, letting peace stealers control your destiny. Now, to be fair, he's right in the sense that at times we need to set boundaries with people. He's right in that we need to make time for our families and for our calling. While those things may be true, I think this statement seems to be out of step with the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul gladly spent himself for the sake of those some may call peace stealers. Paul died to himself on their behalf. And instead of pushing them away because they were preventing them from accomplishing his dreams, he pressed in toward them and was long-suffering with them precisely because seeing them joyful and complete in Christ was his dream. But before we sit here and make ourselves feel good by pointing out some flaws in Joel Osteen's comments, we need to own our own guilt the way our culture treats relationships, especially when there's conflict, isn't just a problem outside of us. It's something that we deal with in here, too. It's in you. It's in me. Think about it. It's hard to develop relationships with people who are different than you. So we naturally gravitate toward those who are similar we tend to pursue those relationships that serve us while we can at times draw back from those that are too costly, too demanding. And when the going gets tough in relationships, when there's conflict, 
We can ignore the issues and try to bury them, or we can be quick to condemn those who have wronged us, to play judge, jury, and executioner on our own. Or we can simply cut people off and push them away. We can be guilty of some of the same things. So we need to see what cruciform ministry looks like, particularly when it comes to conflict and confrontation. And we need to plead with God to help us die to ourselves, follow Jesus, and serve others. We need grace here. And 2 Corinthians 2, 1 to 11, is a much-needed word. In this text, Paul, in the midst of some severe conflict and confrontation in his relationship with the Corinthians, displays two key marks of cruciform ministry, ministry shaped by the cross. One is selfless love and mercy, and two is restorative forgiveness. So let's look at the first one. Selfless love and mercy, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who's there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So at this point in 2 Corinthians, Paul's explaining some changes that he made to his travel plans. So to understand and apply what's going on here, we need a bit of background information. So at the end of 1 Corinthians... If you remember that letter, in chapter 16, verse 5, Paul told the Corinthians that he would visit them after passing through Macedonia. Okay, so that was his original intent. He was going to go to Macedonia. On the way back, he was going to visit them in Corinth. And so he sent Timothy with 1 Corinthians in hand to the city of Corinth. But when Timothy got there, what he found wasn't good. False teachers had come into the city and called Paul's apostleship and ministry into question. So they singled out Paul's suffering and things like his speaking ability, his weak speaking ability, as evidence that he's not the real deal. He's not an apostle like he says he is. He's not to be followed. And tragically, the Corinthians bought that lie. And so given this situation, given the fact that Timothy came to Corinth and found this mess, Paul changed his plans. He decided not to wait and visit Corinth until after he had passed through Macedonia. He decided instead that he was going to visit Corinth twice. He was going to visit them on the way to Macedonia and on the way back. Okay, so when he arrived there for this first visit, Things didn't go well. They didn't go well with Timothy. They didn't go well with Paul either when he showed up. So from what we can gather, the church in general, and one man in particular, and we'll read about him in verses 5 to 11. He may have been a leader in the church, but church in general and this man rejected Paul, and they rejected his apostolic authority. Now, this was a serious situation not just because they were were rebelling against Paul, but because they were, in rejecting Paul, an apostle of Jesus proclaiming the gospel, they were rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting the gospel. So this is a dire situation. And because of this, Paul scrapped the rest of his travel plans entirely. Remember, he was going to go to Macedonia and then come see him on the way back, he decided, no, not doing any of that. He left and instead went to Ephesus, and he wrote the Corinthians this tearful letter, urging them to repent and urging them to discipline this man who led in this rebellion. And so it's that decision to go to Ephesus, and it's that tearful letter that Paul has in mind 
in these four verses of 2 Corinthians 2. So he says in verses 1 to 2, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who's there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Faced with the Corinthians' rejection of him, Paul could have kept his travel plans. He could have left Corinth, went on to Macedonia, and come back to Corinth like he had planned. But if he did that, the Corinthians likely would have persisted in their rebellion. And Paul would have been running the risk of coming back to Corinth and finding an unrepentant church. He already had one painful visit uh, when he went to them on the way to Macedonia and they rejected him, and he didn't want another one. Okay, so if he came back and if he found this rebellion, he would have been forced to discipline them. He would have been forced to put them out of the church, not just for their rejection of him, but remember, for their rejection of Jesus, for their rejection of the gospel. And he didn't want to do that. So instead of going to Macedonia and risking judgment and pain, he showed the Corinthians mercy by changing his course and instead going to Ephesus and writing them this letter urging them to repent. Okay, so let's stop back for a second and think about how astounding this is and how countercultural this is. Remember, Paul planted the church in Corinth. He stayed with them when he did that for a year and a half. You can read about that in Acts 18. They were his beloved children in the faith. He had put a ton of time and effort into ministering to them. And furthermore, he suffered for his ministry to the churches. We'll get to this later in 2 Corinthians, but in chapter 11, he spells some of this out. He was imprisoned. He was beaten, often near death. Five times he received the 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was often in danger. He faced many sleepless nights, often hungry and thirsty and cold and exposure. And why did he do all of this? He did it for the glory of God and the good of these churches. And now, think about this. The Corinthians have the audacity to reject him and to call his apostleship into question on the basis of the testimony of these false teachers, these charlatans who have come into town. What would you have done if you were in Paul's shoes? Maybe we would have been tempted to throw our apostolic weight around and bring immediate judgment on these people. Maybe we would have been tempted to dig our heels in the sand and fight tooth and nail to defend ourselves and our reputation. Maybe we would have been tempted to give up on them, to dust off our feet and leave these foolish people to their own foolish thinking. Paul didn't do any of those things. He showed them mercy. It was merciful of him to not go on to Macedonia and come back, but instead to go to Ephesus and call them to repent. And lest we think that we are too far separated from this in time for it to affect us, let's think about what this can look like in our own personal lives. When someone wrongs you, when you are offended or rejected, maybe for the first, second, or tenth time, how do you respond? Are you quick to condemn? Or do you say whatever you have to say in order to win, in order to defend yourself, in order to protect yourself from those false accusations? Or do you run? Do we act like it's never happened sweep it under the rug and move on like things are just fine. We need grace and we need, we need mercy 
to follow Paul's example here, to extend the mercy that we've been shown in Christ to others just like Paul's doing. Think about how the Lord has treated us. God sent Jesus into the world not to condemn it, but so that we might be saved through him. God has shown us mercy. God has given opportunity for repentance. Judgment, yes, will come later. When Jesus returns, he's coming back with a sword. But for now, we all experience the mercy of God in having time to repent. Paul knows this. Paul's benefited from this. Paul's been shown mercy. God has saved him from his sin. And so that enables him to extend mercy to the Corinthians and do the same thing with them. Not immediate judgment, but allowance for repentance. And do you see it's the same motivation for us in our relationships? We need to understand, we need to know, we need to delight in the fact that the Lord has shown us mercy, that the Lord has granted us repentance. And because that's true, extend that mercy and that grace to others. So Paul did this. He showed them mercy. He wrote them this tearful letter calling them to repentance. And he he explains his motive for that letter in verse 3. He says, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Notice two things about this. First, Paul wrote the Corinthians this tearful letter so they would make him rejoice. Does that sound selfish? That may sound selfish at first glance, right? But it's far from it. Paul's gladness and Paul's joy were united to the Corinthians' joy. If they turned their backs on him and thus reject the gospel, it would pain him. But if they repent, if they receive him, if they stand firm in Christ, he would be joyful. In other words, the Corinthians' joy in Christ is what makes Paul joyful. And therefore, he's going to fight for it. He's going to labor to make sure the Corinthians stand firm in the gospel, even if that means confronting them over their sin. That's not selfishness. That's selflessness. Again here, are we with Paul on this one? Man, I think this is convicting. Like, can we say that others' joy in Christ is what makes us glad? If we're not sure, how can we tell? Well, do we fight and labor for the joy of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that a priority for us? Do we labor for the joy of our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and our classmates who don't know Jesus? Are we sharing the gospel with these folks? Do we want to see them have deep, satisfying joy in Jesus? Or do we prioritize self And instead, do what brings us comfort instead of extending ourselves and spending ourselves for others' benefit. If if that's convicting to you, and it is to me, I think that's a good thing. It's not cause for despair, but it's a cause for prayer. So we need to confess our sin. We need to confess our selfishness to God and ask Him to change us. Ask him to change our heart. And then we don't need to sit back on our heels and wait until we suddenly feel like pursuing the joy of others. Instead, we need to get out and minister to folks. 
And as we do that, as we pray and ask God to change our hearts, and as we live like this is our joy, others are our joy, it'll come. It's certainly not going to come if we sit back and do nothing. So we need, again, we need to follow Paul's example here, but we need to follow his example like he followed Jesus's. Remember, this is a cruciform ministry. Jesus certainly didn't sit back on his heels. Jesus certainly didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. No, Christ humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. And he did this for us and for our salvation. Praise God that that was his delight. So let's remind ourselves of the gospel. Let's celebrate it and pray for the grace to extend that kind of joy and that kind of self-sacrifice to others. So first here, the Corinthians' joy is what makes Paul rejoice. But second, Notice that Paul was confident the Corinthians would respond well to this. That is crazy if you think about it. If, you're here, if you were here for our series in 1 Corinthians, think about some of the issues that he had to address with them. Everything from disunity to permitting a grievous form of sexual immorality where a man was sleeping with his stepmom to suing each other to potentially causing each other to stumble by eating food offered to idols, to abusing the Lord's Supper, to denying the bodily resurrection of believers. And don't forget 2 Corinthians either. Remember what's happening here. They're rejecting Paul, and they're following these false teachers who are calling his apostleship into question. In spite of all of that, Paul was sure they would repent. He says, I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. He had every reason to think the worst of them and give up on them. But he thought the best. And so he mercifully and selflessly wrote them this tearful letter. Again, I think that we can learn from Paul here. Is this how we respond when we're wronged? Do we think the best of those who hurt or offend us? Or do we quickly, automatically place them on trial, judge their motives, declare them guilty, and assume how they would respond if we were to confront them? I think sometimes we're all guilty of that, right? We need to follow Paul in this cruciform pathway and fight to assume the best of our brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean that we don't ever confront someone over sin. In fact, it might actually mean the opposite, that we do, that we are willing to confront others over sin. But as we do, we can do this with the assurance, this expectation that they're going to respond well as a brother or sister in the Lord. So let's not assume the worst of each other. Let's be careful not to be guilty of that. Instead, when necessary, let's lovingly confront sin, confident that repentance and reconciliation are going to follow. And with Paul, remember, he did this, and he wrote them this letter urging them to repent. And get this. In spite of all the reasons to think the worst, he was right. The majority of the Corinthians, they did repent when they received his letter. So he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So the letter grieved the the Corinthians into repenting. It had its intended effect. But don't miss this, the letter grieved Paul too. So 
he wasn't sitting in Ephesus writing this letter to them with a smirk on his face thinking, oh, that'll show them. Or, yeah, that's going to sting. No. But in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, for I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul loved these people. And so he hated what he was seeing. He hated what was happening. Have you ever watched someone you love follow a destructive path and make all the wrong choices? I imagine it was something like that. Only in this case, the wrong choices were of the utmost significance because in rejecting Paul, an apostle of Christ and a minister of the gospel, the Corinthians were rejecting Jesus himself. This crushed him. It broke his heart. And so, with tears and anguish of heart, he wrote them to tell them of his love for them. Do we love others like this? Paul grieved over their sin. He loved them enough to confront them over it. How about us? Are we quick to look over sin, maybe thinking that it's the loving thing to do, and in some cases it is, but look over sin, but really do it out of a selfish desire, simply to avoid confrontation because we don't want to deal with it. Do, do you see how that's unloving? It's placing your comfort over the spiritual, the eternal well-being of your brother or sister in Christ. But we're called to love others, and that means that we speak the truth, but we do so with grace. Okay, so when we see sin in our church family, when we see sin in our brothers and sisters in Christ, it should grieve us, right? We all hurt when we see this. That should be the case anyway. And we should be willing, if necessary, to lovingly confront those who have offended us. This doesn't mean that we're the discipline police and are like white on rice on everybody who does anything that could possibly upset us. But it does mean that when we see sin, when we see sin that needs correction, we're willing to do that. And that takes selflessness. That takes selfless mercy. That takes selfless love. And that takes a rock-solid assurance of who we are in Jesus. Think about this situation. What enables Paul to respond the way that he does to these Corinthians? We've talked about a few ways, the mercy and love, but at the root, he knows who he is in Jesus. Jesus has accepted him. Jesus has died to pay for his sins. He is a son of the Most High. What can man do to him? So when he faces rejection, when he is offended, he doesn't have to throw up his fist and defend himself. He doesn't have to act like it never happened and ignore it because he's afraid of confrontation. He doesn't need to harshly rebuke in a, in a punitive, unloving way. No, because he is secure in his own skin, because he's resting in the gospel of Jesus, he can respond like this. He can show mercy. He can call for repentance. He can think the best, best of others. He can find his joy in the joy of others' spiritual well-being. That is possible because of what Jesus has done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
God didn't send Jesus to earth in judgment and wrath. He came on a rescue mission to save his people from their sins. And because of what he accomplished through his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his triumphant resurrection, that offer of salvation is extended to all. So if you're here today, and if you are not following Jesus, if you haven't turned away from your sins and trusted Jesus to save you, let me just stop here and beg you, let today be the day of salvation. Come to Jesus with empty hands. You can't do anything to save yourself, and the good news is Jesus doesn't ask you to. Come to him with empty hands, own your sin, and ask him to save you, and he will, right here, right now, on the spot. That's good news, right? And those of us who are in Christ, we know that. We have experienced that, and that changes everything about how we relate to other people. It changes everything about how we handle confrontation. It enables us to extend mercy. It enables us to show love. And this, and this is our second point, it enables us to extend what, calls, what Paul calls for in verses 5 to 11, restorative forgiveness. Okay, so in verses 1 to 4, Paul showed the selfless love and mercy in the way that he responded to the Corinthians' rejection of him. And now in verses 5 to 11, he calls the Corinthians who have repented as a result of this letter to extend love and forgiveness to that guy who rejected him openly. Okay, so look at verses 5 to 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Okay, so who, who was this man who rebelled against Paul? If you're really interested to know that, I'm going to disappoint you because I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of debate over his identity, but at the end of the day, we just can't be sure who this guy was. It's possible that he is the man from 1 Corinthians 5 who was sleeping with his stepmother. Okay, so there in that text, Paul tells the church to remove that man and deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, so if this is the case, if the man in question is the man from 1 Corinthians, to 5, 1 Corinthians 5, the events may have played out something like this. Paul may have arrived in Corinth on the way to Macedonia and found that this man was still a part of the church that they hadn't disciplined him like Paul told them to. Okay, and Paul may have had a confrontation with him. This guy could have rebelled against Paul and rejected his authority openly. If that's the case, Paul leaves. He goes to Ephesus instead of up to Macedonia or instead of, to Mas instead of to Macedonia, and he urges the Corinthians to discipline him and to repent of their own rebellion. But there's no reason to conclude that this had to be the case, that it had to be this guy from 1 Corinthians 5. What seems more likely even, 
Like given the context of 2 Corinthians 2 and the fact that sexual immorality isn't mentioned, is that this man was a church member, perhaps a leader in the church, who bought the false narrative of the false apostles and thus openly rejected Paul and rebelled against him. If that's the case, Paul's recourse would have been the same. Remember, we don't go to Macedonia. Instead, he went to Ephesus. He wrote them the tearful letter, urging them to discipline him. Okay, so at the end of the day, we can't know who this guy was, and I think that's okay. What's instructive is how Paul responds to the situation, not necessarily the identity of the party involved. So what exactly did happen here? What do we know? So remember that when this man rejected Paul, when he rebelled against Paul's apostolic authority, the church seemingly stood along with him. That's the reason for Paul's tearful letter. Okay, so Paul left Corinth, he went to Ephesus, and he wrote this letter to them, urging them to repent and to discipline this man, to remove him from the church. Okay, so he says in verse 9, For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So will they or will they not respond to his instruction in this letter? He's showing them mercy now. But if rebellion continues, if rejection continues, judgment and discipline would come. Okay, so Paul wanted them to prove their repentance by disciplining this offender. And we've already said, the good news is, the majority of the church obeyed. Okay, so in verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So the majority, not all, but the majority of the Corinthian church has demonstrated repentance. They have followed Paul and his instruction. Now, how did this all turn out? Well, importantly and wonderfully, discipline had its intended effect. In our, in our culture, when we talk about church discipline, often what can come with it is this heaviness, this sense of harsh uh, authority, this unloving extension, this unloving and misuse of Scripture, or this unloving misuse of Scripture. But that's not the goal of church discipline. That's not what church discipline looks like. The goal isn't punishment. The goal isn't punitive. Church discipline, rather, is a severe mercy so that repentance and forgiveness might occur. The goal is forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's important that we understand that. Okay, if we don't, we might fall off the rails on one or two sides. We could refuse to practice church discipline. We could refuse to confront people over, over their sin. That would be unloving. Or we could be too harsh in how we confront others over their sin. We could be quick to condemn. And when there is repentance, we could hold those sins over their heads, continuing to demand that they pay for it. And Scripture would call us, or wouldn't call us, to either way. Instead, church discipline is a severe mercy intended to bring about repentance and reconciliation. Okay, so, in this case, remember, it did. This guy who offended Paul, this guy who, by extension, offended the entire congregation, he repented. So you can see that in verse 7. Paul says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. 
so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So the word overwhelmed here, that could mean swallowed up. It could mean drowned. The picture that's being painted is this guy's sorrow over his sin has the potential to undo him. It's like a tidal wave coming over him. Potential to overwhelm, potential to drown, potential to swallow up. What's being painted is a picture of genuine repentance. It's not just that this guy's sorry over his sin. He's sorry that his sin had consequences. He's sorry over what his sin cost him. No, he's grieved that he sinned against the Lord and he sinned against the church. So, given that there's genuine repentance, Paul urges the Corinthians to forgive, to comfort, to extend love to this man. And so he says in verse 8, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Okay, so Paul isn't asking the Corinthians to do something that he hasn't already done. Did you catch that? Paul says... Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Do you see what he's doing? Like, I think this, this too is astounding to see his love and mercy. We don't know all the details, but it looks like the offense committed against Paul by this man was serious, severe. And so Paul, as an apostle of Christ, he has an opportunity here. He's writing a letter to the Corinthians. If he wanted to, he could shame this guy. If he wanted to, he could say, oh, oh, oh remember what he did? Let me, let me go ahead and list it all for you. He doesn't do that. Paul has forgiven him. Paul has forgiven this offense in the presence of Christ. And Paul's urging the Corinthians to follow his example. I think that's convicting, right? Have you ever been sinned against by someone, extended forgiveness after they've repented, and yet still been tempted to hold their sin over their heads as leverage? Parents, that could happen with your kids. Your kids sin against you, come to you and repent. You forgive them, and to motivate them in the future, you use what they did to you as uh, a prompt to obedience. You use the offense as a motivator. I've done that, man. Or what about husbands and wives? Have you ever done this with your spouse? your spouse ever sinned against you, confessed and repented, you've forgiven them, but yet later something happens and you remind them of what they did. You got to hold it over their heads because it gives you a relational advantage. You're going to win that argument. You are going to be in the right no matter the cost. That's not how true forgiveness and reconciliation and love works in the kingdom of God. God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He has been merciful toward our iniquities and he remembers our sin no more. Can we say the same toward those who have hurt us? This isn't easy. 
we would be foolish to pretend that it, that it is. This takes supernatural grace from God to live like this. So let's ask for it. Let's plead with God to help us forgive others like he has forgiven us. Let's follow Paul in this cruciform pathway of ministry and put on mercy, love, and forgiveness like he's doing. Okay, now, one qualification I think is needed here as we're talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and refusing to lord someone's sin over them after they've repented does not mean that everything is necessarily going back to the way that it was. Some sins are so grievous that they have continuing ramifications even after repentance and forgiveness are present. Okay, so let me give you one example. At Bethel, and if you are a children's ministry volunteer, you know this. Hopefully you do. Uh, it was in the policy. There will be a quiz later. Um, but we don't allow convicted sex offenders to serve in our children's ministry. That does not mean that a convicted sex offender is too far from the grace of God. Okay? It doesn't mean that there can't be forgiveness even from the offended parties. But here's what it does mean. It does mean that even after they have repented out of love and care for them and out of love and care for our children, the vulnerable, we are going to have safeguards in place for everyone's protection and well-being. And so that ministry is going to be lovingly so off limits. And in this case, think about it in Corinth. If this guy was a leader in the Corinthian church and he sinned against Paul in the grievous way that he did, perhaps after forgiveness and reconciliation occurred, he still may not have been elevated to the position he was in before. We don't know, but that's an example of what it could look like. But what I want us to see here as we begin to draw this to a close, a few things. Notice how Paul downplays the offense that he incurred. We've already talked about this a bit, but he, again, he has an opportunity here to lay this guy's sin out on this letter, and he doesn't do it. So in verse 5 he says, Now if anyone has caused pain... He's caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. This is verse 10. Indeed, what I have forgiven, and catch this, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Isn't that amazing? That he can forgive in that way. Again, forgiveness is not easy, but we need God's supernatural grace to follow Paul in this way, okay? To forgive in such a way that we could say, if I've forgiven anything, that's hard, right? But God gives us that kind of strength, so let's ask for it. Notice, too, and we've talked about this as well, that Paul calls the church to model his example and forgive this man. Okay, so... Let's piece this together. Let's piece what's happening in 2 Corinthians 2. Paul, in verses 1 to 4, is explaining what happened in this change in his travel plans. Okay, so the Corinthians and this man have rejected him. They have rebelled against him. And how does Paul react? Paul shows the Corinthians mercy. Paul shows the Corinthians love. Paul thinks the best of the Corinthians, and Paul gives them time to repent. And now, do you see what's happening in verses 5 to 11? Paul's calling the Corinthians to do the same thing in regard to this man who's committed the offense. He has repented, and so the call, therefore, show him mercy, show him love, comfort 
him. Restore him. And why is it so serious that they obey in this way? Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. A couple of weeks ago, Chris preached on uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, on God's MO, God's mode of operation. Here in, chapter, here in verse 11 of chapter 2, we get to see Satan's MO, Satan's operation. Satan uses conflict for the destruction of the church, the destruction of the individual. He Paul does not want the Corinthians to be outwitted by the devil here. If they refuse to extend forgiveness to this man who has repented, what's going to happen? He may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want them to drive this man into the arms of the devil. Okay, so he wants the church, he calls the church to not be ignorant of Satan's designs. All right, one, um, one commentary that I read on this, a commentator, he puts it like this. He says, his, that's Paul's, call for forgiveness changes an I win, you lose situation to one where brothers in Christ win and Satan loses. The brother is won back to Christ and not lost to Satan. That is what restorative forgiveness looks like. Okay, so let's pray. Let's ask God to help us to put on selfless love. Let's ask God to help us put on selfless mercy Let's ask God to help us extend restorative forgiveness toward the repentant. We need him. We need his grace. We need this cruciform, Christ cross-shaped ministry, and we need the Lord's help. So pray with me. Father, we do ask that you would help us we ask that you would give us your grace and your mercy, that you would fill us up with hope and what you have done for us in Jesus, that you would help us to live out what we're reading in 2 Corinthians. Lord, help us to be a church of people known for our love, known for our mercy, known for our forgiveness. Lord, let this be the case for the glory of your name, and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.